0: As I said, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 4, so if you have your Bibles and you're there, we're going to look at this passage, and I'm going to start by going to the Lord in prayer. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us, and uh, gosh, the privilege of being able to be together again is such... Uh, such a joy. And so just all the conversations we're able to have and the friendships and the fellowship that we're able to to have together, Father, we just thank you for this. And so uh, tonight as we are here, as we dedicate this time to your word, we pray that you would mold us and shape us into the image of Christ, that you would use your word and your spirit to uh, build us up for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Exodus chapter 4 really uh, and this might sound uh, too easy, but it really is a continuation of Exodus chapter 3. It, it, it's the conversation continuing. So in Exodus chapter 3, the Lord has come to Moses while he was, as it says, a shepherd there, and he's keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, in Midian. He's been doing this for some 40 years, as the Bible tells us. So he's he's there, and the Lord appears to him, The Lord appears to Moses like he appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So he hasn't appeared in this way in some many, many years. As we know, it's some 430 years or so between the Lord speaking. And so the Lord appears to Moses, and he says to Moses that I've got a task for you to do. God's people were in Egypt. For many years, they thrived in Egypt. They excelled. They were flourishing as a people. In fact, Exodus chapter one tells us that, that they had become a great nation in Egypt. And we all know how they got to Egypt. It was through that uh, end of Genesis, whenever the famine came and God used Joseph to, to provide uh, provisions there in Egypt for the people of God. So they were there settling there. And so in Exodus, they're thriving and flourishing, but we have a new Pharaoh, a new king, one who did not know Joseph and did not know the agreements they had. And so this new king felt threatened by the Israelites, and he began to enslave them and also began to find a way to end their flourishing by putting to death the children, the males that will be born. And so we find that the setting and we remember the story of Moses in chapter two, his mother throws him into the river as she was supposed to, but she provides him a basket that's made there, an ark, if you remember, and that ark is made and the basket protects him. He's found by Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter brings him up. His mother cares for him. He's raised up as a prince of Egypt in Pharaoh's household only one day uh, to see his people, the Hebrews, being persecuted, being beaten unjustly, he felt like. So he took matters in his own hands and killed an Egyptian. And then he realized that he was in trouble when his own people the next day wouldn't listen to him and said, what are you going to do? Kill us too. And Moses in fear fled. He's in uh, Midian, He finds Jethro, a a kind man, the scripture tells us. He marries his daughter. He keeps his flock. For 40 years he's there until Exodus 3, when God appears again. And God shows up this time, and he's in a bush that is burning and not consumed. The fire represents the presence of God. God shows up, and he speaks to Moses, and he says to Moses, I've got a task for you. And that's what chapter 3 and chapter 4 really are. It's a conversation between God and Moses. And so as we're looking here, what happens is God says to Moses, I've got a task for you. And if you remember, Moses begins to question God on this. Why are you choosing me? And he's got some objections to God choosing him. And so far, we've gotten two of those objections. In chapter 3, verse 11... We find Moses saying to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Almost this shocked inadequacy. Like, why in the world would you pick me for this task? It's just He's shocked by it. He's not capable of doing it. He doesn't think he can bring it about. And remember what God said. God says in response, But, I will be with you, Moses. So he answers Moses' objection with a promise that he is the one who will make him adequate. In other words, he didn't say to Moses, Moses, you're not inadequate. He, he didn't say to Moses, Moses and he, you know how you go on that long thing? Moses, you're a great dude. I mean, look at all the things you've done. You've kept flocks and everything else. In fact, it's in some way that the Lord's agreeing with Moses. Yeah, you are inadequate. Yes, you are. But I'm with you. And that's what qualifies you for this. That's what qualifies you for this. And if we can just step back for a minute, the thing that keeps us from pride, whether it be in ministry or in life or anything else, is the understanding that we are inadequate. That it is God who works in us and through us. For any task that he's called us to, Paul says the same thing, but by the grace of God. How, who, who is qualified for these things? Who can do this? Who can manage it, Paul asks? It's only God's grace that brings us about in his mercy. And so God answers the first objection of Moses, patiently and lovingly. Then he comes and we see a next objection. After God says, I will be with you, Moses' response says, I don't even know who you are. What's your name? I don't even know your name. Moses' response to that statement of I will be with you is to say, I don't even know your name. What's your name? So the Lord graciously graciously gives Moses his name at that point. Remember, I am who I am, Yahweh, the one who can do what he wants to do, the one who's in control of all things, that's me. God answers Moses' objection, first, by saying, I'll be with you, second, by giving him his name, letting him know who he is, by making that that statement there. And then that finishes out, really, chapter 3, as they reiterates the promise that would be given. Verse 19, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. God tells Moses that this is going to be an event that's going to take place, but you are my guy. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so shall plunder the Egyptians. It's a promise God gives to him. Then chapter four, Moses answers again, And while we have seen two objections, Moses will give another here. He says, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. They will not believe me or listen to me. First, he says, I'm inadequate. I can't do it. I don't even know your name, Lord. They won't believe me now. If I come to them with your name, they won't believe me in what I say. They won't believe me. In fact, if you notice in your Bibles here, there's two words that are used. They won't believe me or listen to me. They won't believe me or listen to me. Those two words will be key words going out through the book of Exodus into the book of uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Why? Because this will be the problem Israel has always. Do they believe God and do they listen to him? Do they hear his word when it's proclaimed? Do they believe him, right? And so in scripture, what we need to understand is that there's this flipping of what's normal for us. We say seeing is believing, don't we? Prove it to me. We see it. We get to to experience it in some way. When we see it, we will believe. But in scripture, that is never, ever really the case, God's going to show his power and his might over and over again. And all, all the time, what happens? People go, I'm still going to not follow him, or I'm still not going to. Just look at the New Testament. Jesus continually shows signs and wonders and miracles, and people don't believe, and they turn and go the other way, and they don't follow him. So they think if we see it, we'll believe. You're going to see it here. This is setting it up because the one, the, the great antagonist in this scene is Pharaoh himself, who is going to see the mighty works of God, and his heart is going to continually get harder and harder when he sees them. What we know in scripture is, it's not seeing is believing, it is believing is seeing. It's different. There's this sense in which when you believe, you will see more and greater works than these things. And so he's saying to to Moses, uh, when Moses' response hits on something, he says, they will not believe me or listen to me. They'll say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? So through this, Moses is giving another response, and God's graciously now going to give him some signs. And he gives him three signs. First, what's that in your hand? A staff. He said, throw it on the ground. Didn't y'all ever, there was a song that was done where it was this song that you kind of acted the song out. Y'all remember this? I don't know why I'm talking about this, but I remember it now. I had a guy do it at my home church, and I was young. And, and when I was younger, you know, in my teenage years, just a few years back, when I was younger in my teenage years, there would be times, and I'm just going to go ahead and admit this, nobody does it here, there would be times that I really wasn't paying attention to what was going on in the service. I mean, I'm just being honest. I mean, again, nobody does that now. But there were times when you didn't know. I mean, like, I don't know. And then there's times when something so strange happens that you're like, wow, can you believe that? Out of the norm, this guy gets up and he sings this song. And he's like doing the parts. Y'all know what I'm talking about? It's like you hear God talking. So you're singing it. You throw down the rod, Moses. Y'all ever heard that? Anybody Google it. It's on there. YouTube it. Throw down the rod, Moses, and then Moses respond, but, 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 but God, you know, don't. And so they're like talking back. I had a guy do that and it blew my mind. That's exactly what happens here. Throw it down. There's this conversation that's taking place between God and Moses. And in this conversation, you are seeing really the graciousness of God. This is how kind and forbearing he is with his people. Moses is objecting. Now we'll get to a little more in a minute, but Moses is objecting and God is just patiently and lovingly saying, yes, I'll be with you. Here's my name. They won't believe me. What do you have in your hand, Moses? I've got a rod or a staff, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. Amen. Moses is a man after my own heart. I mean, you don't mess with snakes. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. This is faith. And he put out his hand and he caught it and it became a staff again. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of the fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Now, why is this? This staff that Moses has, you'll find out, becomes a testimony to God's authority in Moses' hand. He'll tell Moses, take the staff with you as you go before the people and lead them. Whenever whenever they need some water, right, and they're grumbling against Moses, and he has this staff in his hand, and what does God say to Moses? Strike that rock with the staff and water will come. The staff is being transformed before Moses' eyes as a sign to say, I am with you. This staff is going to represent my very authority in your hands. They will believe you. And what he does with the staff by throwing it on the ground and becoming a snake, we'll find out that the Egyptians can do that too, right? He'll do that in front of the Egyptian uh, ma- uh, magicians, Egyptian magicians. You can say that a couple times fast. He'll do that in front of them. And they'll say, well, we can do that. They were were the best magicians in the world at the time. We can do the same thing. They'll throw down their rods and they'll become snakes. But what happens whenever Moses' rod is thrown on the ground, it becomes a snake. And their rods become snakes. Y'all remember? We'll get to it in a couple weeks. Moses' snake eats all their snakes because God's authority is greater than theirs. This will become a testimony. I have my authority in your hands, Moses, to hold on to. Not only that, he says, they'll see that and they'll know it. And again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Here, God takes Moses' hand and he demonstrates his power and that he can give you leprosy and he can take it away. Now, leprosy, as we know, is a major deal in the scriptures. And one of the things about leprosy that if if you don't know much about it, one of the things is you can't get it overnight. It takes really a lot of exposure. It is contagious. But it takes something that, that has a lot of exposure over time around it. And really just your antibacterial soap takes care of it, right? And so that's why people would be considered unclean whenever they had leprosy because they had not cleaned themselves and they've been exposed to this over a long period of time and therefore they have received it. You don't get it overnight. God is showing his power God is showing his power to Moses. Say, Moses, I can can give and I can take away these things. I have the power in my hands to give and to take away. In this, God heals what is unhealable, really. He demonstrates his power in this way to Moses, his transformative power to him. And then he says, next. Uh, he's restored like the rest of his flesh. If they'll not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they'll not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Here he uses the rod, he uses his hand here, and now he talks about water to blood. This will become a clear sign to them that God is more powerful than the gods of Egypt. Really, the Nile was the life of Egypt. Everything was coming. Between the sun and the Nile, everything reflected from there. That's where they got their life from. And so God is showing Moses that you can take water from the Nile and I'll turn that to blood. Which, by the way, was the first of the ten plagues, which demonstrated God's power over Egypt and the gods of Egypt in and of itself. And so it's a testimony to God's power. I can turn the waters of the Nile, the great Nile, to blood in a moment. So in this, God is saying, Moses, you have my authority. I can give plagues and I can take them away. I can give them and I can protect you from them at the same time. And I can Demonstrate my power over the gods of Egypt and this world. I am greater. Those are your signs, Moses. The great and authority of God, the transformative power of God, and his authority over the gods of this world. He says, those are your signs. If they don't believe you, they'll believe that. Take those signs with you. So, ultimately, you would think as he anticipates this power over Egypt. He gives them these signs. He's got his third objection. It's been met. Really, up until this point, you can see how the conversation is going. Moses says, "Who am I that I should go?" The Lord says, "I'll be with you, Moses." Moses says, "I don't even know your name. I am who I am, Yahweh." And what if they don't listen to me? Try these signs. They'll listen to you when you dim- when you have these signs. You see how it goes. God has been patient. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent. In other words, Moses has a fourth objection. I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. The literal translation here is, I'm heavy tongued. I'm heavy tongued. We all feel that sometimes, don't we? I'm heavy tongued, Lord. Moses gives the Lord his fourth objection. I'm heavy-tongued, slow of speech. I've got a stutter. I've got a problem. I can't really speak really well. And the Lord said him said to him, who has made man's mouth? That's a good question. This is reminiscent, by the way, of Job. You know, remember, remember when the Lord started to have enough of Job? The Lord, in, in, in the book of Job, Job starts questioning the Lord questioning the Lord and questioning the Lord. His friends tell him, just curse God and die, just all this other stuff. And finally, God is just patient with Job and patient, patient with Job. You talk about Job's patience, God's patient, right? And then the Lord has enough. And you get to Job 38 and he says, okay, all right, Job. It's time for you to come stand before me. And when you come, you better dress like a man because I'm about to dress you down, if you know what I mean. Job 38 is one of these classic passages in scripture. Job, where were you when I hung the stars in the sky? Where were you whenever I tell the sun to get up in the morning and go down at night? Where are you at then, Job? Job, I'm the one who puts the lightning in its place. I tell it where to start and I tell it where to end. I'm the one who tells the thunder how loud it should be, Job. Do you know how the, where the mountain lion has its, has its little babies? Who is the one who leads out the behemoth? Job, that's me. By the way, Job, do you know where I keep the snow? How about that one? The answer to all of this by the time it's over is Job says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry at some point the, the questioning can continue and the Lord is so gracious and so kind. But at some point, Lord says, have I not the one who made your mouth? Do you think I've messed up here, Moses? Do you think I'm coming to you and I forgot that you're heavy mouthed? I made your mouth. I made it just like it is. Do you think I forgot that? Do you think I lost track and been like, oh, I got the wrong person? You know, I showed up in the desert in a bush that's burning and not consumed, and I thought you were somebody else. My bad. You think that's what God's doing here? That's what the Lord's saying. Like, Job, at what point do you not realize that I'm God? I just turned right in front of your face a staff into a snake. I just made your hand be leprous and unleprous in the matter of seconds, right? I just took the blood of the water of the Nile and I can turn it to blood, Moses. I mean, at what point do you not say you are God? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. But in every instance here... I feel like I can relate to Moses in this. And sometimes God has to deal with me the same way. Because every time you're like, is, is this really what we're going to do? Is this really what you expect? And at some point you're like, the Lord's like, Josh, what are, you, what are you talking about? I'm the one who made you. I'm the one who fashioned you. I know everything about you. I know you better than you know yourself. I'm the one who's calling you. I'm the one who's calling you. God in his graciousness says, I'm the one who makes man's mouth, who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind. It, is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go and I'll be with your mouth. I love how that was phrased. Go, I'll be with your mouth. I'll, I'll lift up your heavy mouth, Job, or Job, Moses. Go, I'll do it. I'll be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. God has told him he'll be with him. God says, I'm the one who made you. I'm the one who fashioned you. Trust me and go. There comes a point when our excuses no longer carry any water whatsoever. That God has clearly told us, taught us, and called us, right? And he is saying, go, and we can make all the excuses in the world. And all the patience of God will come down to where it says this. And you don't want to get here, verse 13. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then, verse 14, the anger of the Lord was kindled. Y'all hear that? You don't want to be at that spot. Does that make sense? The anger of the Lord was kindled the Lord began to have enough of this. It comes a point where the questioning of God and his calling in our life and what he has asked us to do, the questioning of that becomes not some false humility of I'm not good enough. It becomes a questioning of God himself, his power, his authority, and his wisdom in calling us to do something. In other words, you don't believe God. It's a lack of faith here. And why the Lord's anger begins to be kindled is because of that very reason. Moses is demonstrating not some humility that he may think he have. He's demonstrating a lack of faith in the God who's calling him. He's demonstrating that. And the Lord, that's when he is jealous for, right? He's jealous for his own glory. He's jealous for faith from his people. And he says, here, Job, Uh, Job, I got got on Job. I can't get off Job. It's a one-syllable word. I'm a simple-minded guy. Moses, if I say Job, just assume it's Moses from here on out. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Send someone else. After all of his excuses, after God being patient and kind with him, he just finally says, just send somebody else, God. The Lord then, again... Shows his kindness. Against Moses he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him. Put the words in his mouth and I will be with your mouth. And with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people. He shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. What the Lord is saying is, Moses, you're my man. But in the Lord's gracious and kindness, he is going to provide someone to help him where his weaknesses are. He's going to provide Aaron, his brother. And so the Lord will speak to Moses. Moses will tell Aaron, Aaron, the eloquent, will speak to the people. God again knows the situation, knows what's happening, understands it, and has not made a mistake in calling Moses. And in this, he provides. Now, there's all kind of lessons here, I believe. I mean, this chapter 4 is so, you get into it, and I think, man, you know what, I'm going to be able to breeze through chapter 4 tonight. It won't be much. Then you start looking at it, and I don't think I'm going to get to all of it. But, But you come to it, and you realize how God is lovingly and patiently dealing with one of his people. And that's a lesson for all of us because we can make excuses and we can make objections to God and we can do all of those things. But here, the conversation, the Lord is patient and he provides what we need always. And he gives us, if he's going to call us, well, have you heard this before? If the Lord calls us, he will equip us. He will equip us. By the way, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has professed faith in him, this side of Pentecost, who is it that the Lord says will fill our mouth whenever we're called on to speak? The Holy Spirit himself. The Holy Spirit himself. Don't you worry about when you go, Jesus said. When you go, the Spirit will give you what you need to say. And so just as God provided Aaron for Moses, God provides the spirit for us in such a time that we need him to equip us with what we are called to do. The Lord says, I've got you. Your inadequacy is right where you need to be. Because when you're weak is whenever we are strongest. The Lord is the strongest. And so ultimately, that's exactly what we see here in this conversation with Moses. Moses. Go, he says, his hand, he shall speak for you to his people, be God to him. Take in your hand his staff, which you shall do these signs. These signs proved ultimately that Moses was God's prophet, it proved that Moses was speaking God's words. Prove that he was leading God's people. The signs were not to be the ultimate part of what Moses does. They're only testifying to the word of God. Just as the apostles would do signs in Acts, they're doing those signs not to show their greatness and the signs as the greatness, they're doing them to testify to the word that is being proclaimed. This is how you know it's true because you see these things. You see these things. They testify to its truth. And so ultimately, Moses is led out with the staff, with these signs that he's been given, proving he's God's prophet, speaking God's word, leading God's people. So, verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back. I was going to make a, I was really right there thinking, I'm sorry, I was thinking about making another uh, Beverly Hillsbillies joke, but I didn't. Every time I think of Jethro, you've got to think of you know stone pond. Please go back to my brothers in Egypt to see, to see whether they are still alive. Please let me go back. Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. There's a lot of parallels, by the way. If you wanted to study this on the side, a lot of parallels between Moses and Jacob. Y'all remember Jacob fled Jacob went and he fled to to Laban and he was the shepherd there and God blessed him and God spoke to him out in the middle of the field told him to go back y'all remember all that same type thing he speaks to go back God goes to uh, when he goes to Laban Laban says no you know you know here Jethro shows his kindness that Jethro says yes go in peace so Jethro said go in peace verse nineteen and the Lord said to Moses in Midian. Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now, let me come back to that, okay? We can skip over. Because the next section here is one of the strangest in all the book of Exodus. I mean, my goodness. He just called Moses. They went through this whole two-chapter conversation. Moses made all of his objections, and, and, and God said, I'm going to be with you. Shut up and go, right? Finally, I don't know if the Lord speaks like that, but he said, go. Get out, Moses. Let's go and go after it. And then Moses takes off and he's going back. Jethro's let him go and everything. Go tell Pharaoh, show the signs, let Pharaoh know this is what's going to happen. Here's how it's going down. Go tell him everything. Israel's my my children. It's almost like the rallying speech. You know what I'm saying? It's like the Lord is, is the coach in the locker room saying, go get them. Let's go get them. And then verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Does that not seem weird to y'all? <laughs> I mean, all of a sudden, it's like he gives him the rah-rah speech. Let's go. You're about to whip him and go get him. Go after it. The victory's yours. Go take them down. Let's have at it. And then on the way back, he about killed him. Now, the reason, just a couple things. Let me remind you of some stuff. The Bible is true. Every word of it. All inspired by the Holy Spirit, breathed out, as Paul says to Timothy, by the Spirit of God. And one of the ways we know it's true is because of verses like this. Because if Moses, who's writing this back, if he's trying to write this, he probably's not putting this verse, if it's just up to him, in this passage. You know what I'm saying? He's not probably not going, especially what not what comes next. He's gonna to sought to put him to death. Denzipporah, who was his wife, took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it, and said, Surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. What in the world? I don't, I mean, like, seriously, when you read that the first time, you're like, what is going on here? It just seems random. It just seems like it's in it. And if you're just writing this, trying to tell the story of how God saved Israel from Egypt, you're probably skipping this couple verses and not putting it in there. You know what I mean? But the testimony is that the Lord wanted this verse in here and that the spirit of God is inspiring it. And he's not writing Moses' story, he's writing his story of how he is going to redeem his people. Therefore, this verse has a purpose and I'm not going to lie to you, it's not an easy passage. But let me tell you what I think's happening here. What I think's happening here is that Moses is called to go. He's sent back. But there's this problem that Moses does or doesn't do. Moses does not follow through with the covenant sign of the promise of God. You remember back in Genesis, whenever, whenever God came to Abraham and Abraham's like, I, 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 I don't know about this. How do I know this is true? He said, I'm going to give you a sign and that sign will be circumcision, right? Right. That's what's going to mark your people off as mine, circumcision of the flesh. That will be your sign. That becomes vitally important because you circumcise your children because you believe the promises of God. This child is the Lord's, and I believe the promises of God. And what Moses should have done, he knew better. And how did he know better? He knew better like Cain knew better. Does that make sense to everybody? What happened with Cain? God demonstrated the sacrifice he desired in Genesis chapter three, whenever Adam and Eve sinned and in order for them to continue living, they were inappropriate before God. They could not stand before him in order for them to continue living. A blood sacrifice had to happen and they had to be covered. Their nakedness had to be covered so that they were no longer inappropriate in the presence of God, but they were appropriate before him, right? Right. They were dressed properly, covered through these animal skins, which represented a sacrifice for their sins. God was the first one who sacrificed in that way and put it forward. That becomes the the pattern for all future sacrifices. So Abel got it. When Abel sacrificed, he took the the lamb that was that was priced the precious, and he he sacrificed the lamb, and it was a blood sacrifice. That's what God desires a blood sacrifice, but Cain came in and he didn't take the time to do that. He tried to offer up some grain, you know, a couple stacks of grain from his from his little field or something like that. And God said, why are you bringing that to me? That's not good enough. You know better than that. It's not as if there's an explicit in Genesis 3, this explicit statement, only bring to me a blood sacrifice. No, you see the example of Christ I mean, the example of God gives, which points to Christ, you see the example that God gives through the sacrifice of these animals, and that's the expected thing that God requires from his people. And Cain thinks, I'm not going to do that. Similar here, similar here, it's not as if the Lord needs to tell Moses again, circumcise your children. He knew of this, and he should have done this, Before he heads back to Egypt, he should have shown that this is, he just told him, these are my people. This is my son. Israel is my firstborn son, the Lord's saying. So Moses should have have circumcised his son as a testimony to the promises of God that he believed him. And he's going back believing those promises. Moses makes this mistake and just like judah was saved by tamar right just like jacob was saved by rachel just like it's happened before zipporah figures it out and where's zipporah from anybody remember midian right but she had heard she knew what was required She had heard of it herself. She figures it out. She takes the flint knife. I don't know what a flint knife is necessarily. I just hope it's real sharp for the kid's sake. She takes the flint knife. She circumcises her son. And then she takes that over to Moses. And she puts it at his feet. Almost saying, you should have done this. I'm doing this on your behalf. But it says the Lord sought to kill him. We need to understand that the Lord did not try to kill. If the Lord wanted to kill Moses, what would the Lord have done? Boom, he would have killed him. It was a testimony that Moses' mistake of not believing in the promise of God is a death penalty. If we don't believe in God's promises, then death is coming. That's the payment for not believing in the promises of God. And so Moses is, uh, is, is, is in terrible danger here. Because his testimony is that he doesn't believe in the promises. Zipporah comes and makes it right. She makes it right now. Because whatever it is, what saves Moses, what saves all of them, is that they believe and trust in the promises of God. The reason why God's redeeming them out of of the bondage of slavery in Egypt is because he made a promise to redeem them. The reason why he's calling them out of that to take them to the land is because he promised them this land. The reason why he's doing all of this is he said he would bless them. All of this is happening because God made a promise and God's going to keep his promise. And the only way we are saved, and I'm using that word particular for a reason, the only way we're saved from death that comes to all of us because of sin is because we believe in the promises of God. By the way, that's the way we're saved today. If you're a child of God today, it's because you believe in the promises of God. The promises that were made, and for us, the promises that were kept. Because all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ, Paul says. And so we believe in that. Moses here makes a terrible mistake because in his action or in his inaction, whether it's sins of commission or omission, he did not testify that he believed in God's promises. So we don't know if it was intentional. We don't know if it was wrong or right, whatever the case may be for Moses and what his thought process is. We know that Zipporah figured it out and she she saved him in this action. In verse 26, so he let him alone. And it was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Ultimately, you see then he heads back and just as God had told Uh, Moses, Aaron would be waiting. In fact, God appears to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Recognize the pattern here. He goes out, just as the Lord promised, the people believed, the people heard. Y'all remember those two words, believe and listen? The people believed, the people heard, and the people worshipped. I think that's all of us, right? We believe in the Lord who has come. We hear his voice and we worship him. We worship him. The proper response for all of us. Now, if I can, quickly, we'll go back to these verses, this road ahead here, looking back and seeing to Moses, here's what's coming, basically. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so he will not let the people go. The Lord says, I will harden his heart. This idea of a hardened heart is, I think, fairly simple in scripture. Now, what we'll find is you're going to find this this balance here that's going to go throughout Exodus of divine intervention, God doing something, and personal responsibility. Pharaoh, for example, will be the one who hardens his heart, And God will say, I'm hardening his heart. Do y'all see how that works? Both of those are true. Both of those are true. And so how does that work in some way? What does it mean to have a hard heart? Whenever he goes back, what does he mean here when he says he's going to have a hard heart? First, he means, I think it simply means, as we look throughout scripture, is that someone with a hard heart is someone that cannot see the truth. They cannot see the truth. In fact, if you see over in Mark Mark's gospel, and you don't have to turn there, I'll flip there for you. Mark's gospel, I think it's chapter 8. The Lord is talking to them because they, they, he has broken the bread, he's, he's fed the uh, 5,000, he's done all of these things, and now he's talking to them about it. And he says to them, they began discussing with one another in verse 16 or 15, 16, discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? I just turned five loaves into feeding 5,000. I mean, what are y'all worried about here, right? Why are y'all discussing? I mean, could you imagine in their presence The Lord had just taken five loaves and two fishes. Y'all remember? Turned the five loaves and two fishes into enough to feed 5,000. And they had how many baskets left over? Twelve. Y'all remember the flannel graph stories? Had 12 baskets left over. And just a few minutes later, they're like, oh man, we didn't get any. I can't believe we didn't get any. The Lord's like, I just turned, like, what are y'all talking about? You didn't get any look at what I can do. And what does he say to them? He says, why are y'all discussing the fact you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, you do not see having ears. You do not hear and you do not remember what I did. And when he broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of pieces did I take up? You see what he's saying." Like, y'all just saw it. Why are you doubting me? Your hearts are hardened because you don't see the truth. And so when our hearts are hardened is when we don't perceive or see what is true right before our very eyes. We find that in Scripture in several places. The Pharisees couldn't do it. In fact, he quotes, Jesus quotes Isaiah to them when he says to them, you have eyes but do not see it, right? You do not you do not see, you do not perceive and your hearts have become hardened to the truth of God. Here we see Pharaoh does it. Pharaoh's going to see the miracles. He's going to see the signs. Ten plagues are going to be before his eyes. And his heart only gets harder. It only gets harder. Not only do you can't see the truth, in not seeing the truth in a hard heart, you begin to resist God. God. So you not only not see the truth, you begin to get angry about it, frustrated at it. Have any of y'all ever been around people that are like that? Like the more, I don't know if y'all do. I I rarely ever get in any arguments whatsoever. I'm just peace and love with everybody. And you get into the argument and you know you are right. Y'all know what I'm talking about? There was a commercial, Allison. I I don't know if she's in here now, if she's not. Al, you in here? Up oh, way back yonder. She's back there. There's a commercial and I, we talk about this all the time. Now there's a commercial of a husband and wife and they're getting traveling. Y'all know in football, NFL, you can have a replay. You know what I'm saying? And they're arguing over what was said and they throw the replay flag. Let's play that back. Let's play it back. We talk about it all the time. Let's just, if, if I had a recorder, I'll promise you what I'm saying is right. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Let's play it back. Play it back. Because you know you were right but the person you're talking to just keeps going. Nope, not true. Nope, not true. Not going to do it. Not going to see it. Not going to do it. Not going to see it. That's not, by the way, I'm not telling you which one I am and which one Allison is in the next conversation. But you know it. And then how frustrating is it when you know what's true and the person who saw it with you won't admit it, won't believe it. And the more you argue, the more they get obstinate about it. That's what a hard heart is. And that's what a hard heart is before God. God has demonstrated his love, his power, his perfection. He's demonstrated these things for you over and over again, but you refuse to see it. And none of you refuse to see it. You get angry as if he hasn't done a thing for you. As if he hadn't done one thing. That's what he says is a hard heart. Here, he says that I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. What this means is ultimately, and my friend back here helped me with this, there's three words ultimately for this. It's a progression that you see, to stiffen, to strengthen, and then finally to deaden. And what the Lord is saying he's going to do is that Pharaoh's heart is already stiffened against me. That's what he's saying. Pharaoh's heart is already stiffened against me. Pharaoh believes he's a God. Pharaoh believes he knows, He's he's not going to listen to some foreign deity. He's God, Pharaoh. He is the one with Ray, the God of the sun. He doesn't listen to anybody else. He's already stiffened. And what happens here, God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart simply by revealing himself. He's going to harden his heart simply by revealing himself. Because Pharaoh was already stiffened before God, right? It's already stiffened up before God and he is against him already and God is going to show himself. He's going to turn the Nile into blood. He's going to bring a bunch of gnats and that's going to be aggravating. He's going to make all of their cattle die. He's going to just do all of these plagues one after another. They're going to get balls all over their skin. There's just going to be one. He's going to turn everything into darkness. In fact, he's going to cut the sun off, the Stars off and everything else in such a way that they cannot see their hand before their face, it says. He's going to show them over and over again. And since Pharaoh was already stiffened before God, it's only going to make him more hard. God revealing himself is only going to show him more and more. So he's not going to stiffen, he's going to strengthen. And what the Lord is saying here is I will finally deaden him. I will let him be what he will be. And in that way, you can say both are true. Pharaoh is responsible for the hardening of his heart, and God has done it. And that may be a tough pill to swallow, but it's the same exact thing that we talk about this week in Acts chapter 2. When Peter looks at, the, Peter looks at those who are the chief priests and he says, this Jesus whom you crucified was delivered over in the perfect plan of God and he raised him from the dead you're guilty and you made a ruling about this God over oh I don't want to give you all my sermon yet I, I, I might better way God overruled your ruling and ultimately they're guilty for the death of Christ yet God has brought it about by his determined plan sometimes it's tough for us to feel that way but we we call this in theology concurrence, right? It's a way for us to say the same way Moses is writing Genesis. He's writing Genesis. He's not, God's not dictating this. We don't believe in the dictation theory where, where God just say, hey, take this down, write it, boom, boom, boom. That happens a couple times, like the 10, you know, and, and, and a couple, but mostly Moses is writing. Hey, let me tell you the story, how it goes. I'm writing it out. And in his writing of this, his, his personality has seen, his understanding has seen all of these things. And at the same time, the spirit is inspiring him in such a way to say every word Moses is writing is also the very words of God. And so we say it in that way as well. So here, Pharaoh, who was already inclined, stiffened up, hardened, if you will, toward God, God is only going to reveal himself and harden him all the more until finally he will be deadened, as it says. He will be deadened. And what is God going to do then? As he has to deal with this, this curious combination of human actions, divine intervention, God will then, having shown what he'll do with Pharaoh, God will then affirm the relationship he has with his children. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Israel's my son. And I say to you, let my son go. But listen what the next line says. Who were the people of God serving at this point? Pharaoh, they were slaves. Let my son go so that they can, he can serve who? Me, the Lord says. He can serve me. And this is not the trading of one bit of slavery for another. This is us getting out of oppressive slavery and bondage and looking toward a father whom we serve with joy, happiness, who is good and kind and provides. He's saying, I'm the good father. This is my son. Let them go. They will serve me. I'll take them as my own. In other words, the Lord is not going to leave them as as orphan slaves in Egypt. He is bringing them back as his child, his children. And he's the good father who will take them in. It demonstrates that God's affirming his relationship. He'll not leave his child behind, and God's people will be serving him. And ultimately, in this statement in verse 23, it foreshadows the very plan by which God will use to demonstrate his ultimate power and redemption. He says, if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. This points to the 10th plague. Finally, as Pharaoh's heart is hardened to the point of dead, the Lord says it's time. And he pronounces that Passover that's coming. The firstborn son will be killed. And not only does that testify to the nature of the sinfulness of Egypt, but it also speaks to the promise of redemption that God will bring. Because it's not the firstborn sons of Israel that he will kill. It's his own firstborn son that he will ultimately send to the cross to redeem his people from their sins. And so the Lord here points to this. In fact, all of this, I think, in that little section, the reason why I end here is it points us to Jesus himself. Remember what happens in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew's gospel, it is this beautiful picture as he lays out the history or the the, um, story, the narrative of the birth of Jesus. It follows right along. It follows right along with the history of Israel itself. For Jesus is born. Herod Herod, Herod wants to kill all the baby boys. Y'all remember this? And so what has to happen when Herod wants to kill all the baby boys? He flees to Egypt. He runs to Egypt. And then where we see him again, he comes back in and he goes to The baptism there with John, passing through the waters of baptism, if you will, and from the waters of baptism, like the Red Sea, if you want to get that in mind, he goes straight where? Into the wilderness. He goes into the wilderness and in that wilderness for 40 days. Almost following along the story perfectly, in that wilderness for 40 days, he's tempted by Satan, just as it says the Israelites were. And they grumbled and they complained and they fussed and all this other nonsense. But what did God say at the baptism of Jesus? This. If you can, put the emphasis on this, right? This is my beloved son. You see what he says here in in, in Exodus chapter 4? Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. He looks at Jesus at the baptism. He says, now this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is the one I love. And when he goes into the wilderness, what is it that the devil says to him? Does God really love you? I mean, look at you. You're out here in the wilderness, I ain't eat anything. I tell you what, I, you can get some food if you want to. Man doesn't live by bread alone. Does God really love you? That's Satan's attack. And that's the same exact thing that happens to Israel whenever they step into the wilderness. He brought you out here to die. He hadn't even provided anything for you. Does God really love you? Satan's great desire is for us to always question the very love of God. And Jesus becomes our testimony because he is the good son who went into the wilderness and was faithful to the very end. He's the one that faced the temptation, and he says, I will not look to, love, or trust another. It is only in the promises of God do I look. And just like he told me he will feed me, he will feed me. And just like he told me that I will reign on the throne, I don't have to go up to the top of the temple and throw myself down to get it all. He will give it all for me in the end. He trusts me. I trust him. That's my God, and that's who I serve. And so ultimately, even here in this passage in Exodus, it's pointing us as Jesus says Moses did, Moses is writing about me, he says. It's pointing us to how God not only is going to redeem Egypt, uh, redeem Israel out of Egypt, but how God is going to redeem His people ultimately out of the bondage of sin. It's through His beloved Son that He will call out. And he will die that night on our behalf. That's how he does it. So ultimately, it points us there. Hopefully, by all means, as we look to this passage, we learn in the conversation with Moses of God's patience and his grace and his love. We learn of the necessity for us to follow him and his promises, trust his promises and be obedient to him. Hear, believe. We learn of that and we learn that he will redeem his people through his beloved son, not leaving us as orphans, but coming to get us, coming to get us ourselves. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your kindness to us in this word. And I pray that you will use it for your glory in our hearts and in our lives. Thank you for this evening in Jesus name. Amen. Thank y'all so much. We'll see you Sunday. Acts chapter two, Peter's sermon this Sunday, Sunday night, five o'clock. We'll see you then too. Thank y'all.